Hello and welcome to this special podcast on the recent updates to the ULAR guidelines for the management of SLE. So this is a very important subject today. I'm Ed Vital from the University of Leeds. I'm chair of the Lupus Forum. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Dimitrios Bumpas, who's a professor of medicine at the University of Athens. And he was actually the lead of the task force that updated the ULAR guidelines. So welcome. Professor Bumpas. Thank you, Ed. It is great to join you. So the aim today is to discuss the update and how it was done and also to focus on what that means for clinical practice. So I'll hand over to you to go over the main changes. Thank you. Uh, please allow me to show you some slides just highlighting why this was done and um, the task force members, the overarching principles and the statements and briefly discuss them. And then uh, this will be followed by questions and answers. So uh, I guess the obvious question is why should somebody update the regular recommendation 2023? And uh, for two reasons, because new treatment strategies and more ambitious goals of treatment uh, have been uh, become possible. Uh, thanks to the new treatments being introduced, but at the same time, the realization that there is a need to streamline, simplify, and homogenize these recommendations to comply with the uh, new ULAR standard operating procedures to facilitate their dissemination. Another important reason uh, for updating this uh, this year is that. Uh, 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 always ULAR has tried to have international experts, but uh, we felt that uh, we had to increase the international presence in these recommendations. So uh, we felt that uh, we should, uh, during this round of uh, update, we should involve uh, more pe people all over the world, and you'll see that this uh, became feasible. So these are the members of the task force. As you can see, many Europeans nephrologists, rheumatologists, nurse practitioners, patients, representatives, but also people from Asia, from uh, 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 North America and uh, South America. So this is an international, indeed, uh, task force. So these are the overarching principles for the new recommendations. First, we stress that the lupus requires a multidisciplinary individualized management with patient education and shared decision-making, taking into consideration the cost to the patient and the society for the treatment. Uh, we stress again that lupus disactivity needs to be assessed at each clinic visit and, uh, and combined with evaluation of the organ damage at least once annually using validated instruments. We stress again the importance of non-pharmacologic interventions, including sun protection, smoking, and so and so on. Uh, then we dis we said that the pharmacological interventions are directed uh, and tailored to the patient characteristics, the type and severity of organ involvement, treatment-related harms, comorbidities, risk for progressive organ damage, and patient preferences. All these are taken into consideration. And finally, that uh, early SLE diagnosis and regular screening and, uh, is important and frequent monitoring to assure adherence to the therapy 
and uh, to uh, and these are essential to prevent flares and organ damage, improve prognosis, and enhance quality of life. And this is because data from all over the world suggest that the earlier the diagnosis of lupus and the uh, more strict monitoring, the better are the outcomes. So if this is kind of the... suggesting a treat-to-target approach, really, isn't it? That we measure disease activity every visit and target means disease activity and steroid dose that we have to optimize. Is that fair to say? Indeed. Uh, so I guess what you're emphasizing is an important point. We don't have individual therapies. We have a strategy and with certain goals, as you suggested, and uh, uh, we try to, to portray this with these recommendations. Mm. These are just some data suggesting that uh, although uh, why it's important still to talk about the early diagnosis, because uh, in many countries, including the UK, but uh, all over the world, there is significant diagnostic delay and uh, uh, which can vary. And uh, this uh, slide just highlights this. To this end, uh, groups, including the group from George Bertschias and Creed, have devised and taking advantage of the SCR EULA recommendation, uh, classification criteria, have, have tried to, to adjust them to, to, start, to start thinking of uh, diagnostic criteria uh, to estimate an SLE risk probability index, they call it SLE uh, Slurpee. We tried it in the internal medicine clinic, we found it useful and they may facilitate their diagnosis of lupus. So without any further delay, this is the first statement, no surprise, uh, talks about the hydroxychloroquine. The target dose is five milligrams per kilogram, uh, uh, decreases the risk of flare. At the same time, you have to talk the, uh, the retinal toxicity into consideration. And uh, we discussed that uh, in previous years, because the monitoring was not as sophisticated as is nowadays, we uh, somehow were missing uh, a subclinical toxicity. And that's why it's important to, to target the dose of 5 milligram per kilogram. If you exceed this dose, there is maybe using sophisticated techniques, you may sign some retinal toxicity. And that's why we have to stick to this dose. And I've noticed, um, I, I noticed that some of my colleagues you. are starting to dose by weight more than they used to actually. That many people just used to use a fixed dose of 200 milligrams, but actually it's not appropriate for all patients. I'm glad to hear that. So you have to take into consideration, I guess, hydroxychloroquine is a drug usually you don't discontinue, but at the same time, uh, we try to emphasize that it's important to keep an eye on the retinal toxicity and that you have to assess the risk for flare. There are some patients who have a higher risk and uh, the retinal toxicity with a longer use. Should we move to the next one, Ed? Yes. The second, of course, uh, uh, statement uh, uh, deals with the glucocorticoids. Glucocorticoids have been the cornerstone for the therapy of lupus uh, as hydroxychloroquine. But here, and this is a departure for, uh, from the previous recommendations, we decided based on the data that the maintenance dose should be less or equal to five milligrams per day, the prednisone equivalent. 
And we also discussed excessively and decided that most of us agreed that the use of uh, patches of methylprednisolone test with moderate uh, uh, or severe disease may facilitate the use of moderate and not high doses. And this is the recommendation which uh, supports this. As you can see here, the evidence is uh, very good, it's 2AB. And for the pulses of intravenous prednisolone, the data is, are not as strong, but the experts decided that may be uh, useful. Ed, would you like to comment on this? I mean, I just noticed that the, main, the, the target dose of five is lower than in some other guidelines now, isn't it? Because the LLDAS criterion, for example, is 7.5 milligrams. But now we're saying, no, preferably zero, but now five, which I, I feel is very positive step and as we said thank you and as we said this is we're doing this because now we have new drugs which allow us to decrease uh, uh, the doses of steroids further while maintaining remission losses activity yes now the uh, we're talking about the strategies as ed suggested so uh, in this statement, we suggest that the early use of DMARDs or immunosuppressive therapies or biologics uh, can enable us to reduce the dose of steroids. And here is another important point. Uh, you do not have to, to cycle them. You don't have to necessarily use DMARDs or immunosuppressive therapy first. Uh, the EULA the recommendations give you the flexibility if you wish to go directly to the biologics based on the profile of the patient. Uh, uh, very often, we, we try the DMARDs first, and then we move to the biologics, mainly because of consideration of the cost. But at the same time, we felt that there are certain patients that uh, you, you should be able to, 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 to go to them first. And these biologics that we're discussing here are the Benimumab and the Anifrolumab, with very strong evidence for efficacy and safety uh, from uh, 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 randomized control clinical trials. Ed, any comment on this? And, and at the moment, I, I think that's very positive to be able to use the biologics first line. But at, at the moment, there are only very, there are only limited ways that we can decide which patient should go straight to a biologic or which patient should try an immunosuppressant first, or or which of these options is the right one. Is that? We, we we have a few a few situations which are covered in some of the other guidelines, but we don't. For many patients, it's hard to decide. That's a good point, and I guess just to simplify this, although this will come up uh, again with the subsequent considerations, I guess the committee felt that each time that you have to use uh, moderate to high dose of steroids, even uh, if it's early in the disease, you start thinking of biologics from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And because the data are strong, the biologics, and also just, and I say that after many years of experience, like uh, Dr. Uh, Vidal has, is that it's not clear the data that, that the methotrexate or azathioprine or MMF, the quality of the data are not as good as with the biologics. That doesn't mean that the notifications, but the data, um, uh, the quality is not as good although it's uh, clinically, we use them all the time. So the, the bottom line is that once you start in a patient, even early in the disease, if you think that you may need moderate to high dose of steroids, 
start thinking of the biologics early, considering uh, the prescription, what uh, the local conditions in the country allow you to do in the insurance companies. Yeah. Uh, the cyclophosphamide and rituximab are the two drugs that in previous recommendations we suggested that they can be used for, I'm talking about the high-dose cyclophosphamide and the rituximab for patients with refractory disease. Uh, the urolupus pulse um, as, uh, that was uh, pioneered by people in UK and in Belgium has shown that he has very good results and limits the toxicity. However, uh, we felt that um, you know, few patients with severe disease uh, need, they may need cyclophosphamide. And at the same time, during the last pre, pre, uh, few years, the past few years, uh, rituximab was becoming uh, increasingly popular. After the COVID epidemic, we became more familiar with, uh, with the risk for delayed uh, uh, clearance of the COVID, of uh, the slowly recovering COVID. So that's why we thought that, uh, and because rituximab is not available, it's not approved for lupus, and in many parts of the world, cyclophosphamide is cheap and it's available. We thought that uh, we should not forgive, uh, forgive, uh, forget an important uh, drug and just uh, put this statement, which is, uh, says that in patients with organ or life-threatening disease, intravenous cyclophosphamide should be considered in refractory cases, rituximab may be considered. Ed, would you like to, to comment on this? Yeah, I think it's interesting that even despite all these new therapies, cyclophosphamide still has an important role, I think. And I still use it in my clinic. Is it? Would it be fair to say that some of the patients that we're talking about in this statement wouldn't have been in the trials for belimumab and anifrolumab? They're more refractory, more severe patients who are inpatient hospitalized, the, these sorts of patients. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay. So let's move to the. Uh, and we started dealing with the domains of uh, domains of lupus. Uh, the skin disease it's it's a it's a challenging aspect of lupus, especially when at the same time we acknowledge that the more data, the stronger the data were uh, uh, with anifrolumab. So the treatment of active skin disease should include topical agents, antimalarials, and systemic steroids, methotrexate, microphenolate, or anifrolumab and belimumab, considered as a second-line therapy. This is the statement. Ed, any comments on this? I, I mean, I just, just I suppose that I think it's for us who are not dermatologists too important to learn how to use the topical therapies well, actually, because we, as rheumatologists, we may not know it as well as our dermatology colleagues. Okay, so think of the biologics as a second line therapy, especially the strongest data with anifrolumab, and there are some impressive re responses. I, I'm impressed too, yes. With uh, anifrolumab in patients with severe cutaneous lupus. In reference to the neuropsychiatry, Psychiatric lupus, nothing changes. There's no much data. Uh, it's the same statement. If we think that this, the neuropsychiatric manifestations are attributed to lupus, we use steroids and immunosuppressive drugs, or if it's thrombotic, use antiplatelets, anticoagulants. 
and uh, and there is no departure from the previous recommendations. This is a black box of lupus. Um, uh, anything to add, I mean, add on this? Again, I suppose the reason it hasn't changed is because we often exclude neurolupus, neuropsychiatric lupus from clinical trials, don't we? That's the uh, so the, in the the trials of belimumab and anifrolumab and many other new drugs, neuro severe neuropsychiatric lupus is excluded. So we we still have little evidence. That's a good point. It's an admitted in uh, lupus yeah. trials for neuropsychiatric disease as it suggested. Hematologic disease is becoming more prominent, especially in large centers. Uh, MMF has uh, uh, won some publicity after the New England Journal of Medicine paper suggested that it's uh, effective in uh, uh, immune thrombocytopenia. And this is, uh, uh, this is a statement for acute treatment of severe autoimmune thrombocytopenia, high dose of steroids, intravenous um, uh, globulin, rituximab, cyclophosphamide, and followed by maintenance therapy rituximab, azathioprine, or microphenolate and cyclosporine should be considered. So here we're discussing uh, more the microphenolate. There are good data about the rituximab that works. Uh, I'm not very impressed with azathioprine, but uh, uh, or cyclosporine. Um, I think, you know, after rituximab and the gamma globulin, MMF has made an, uh, it's an impor important step to forwards. Ed, yeah. any comments? I agree. I just, I suppose one thing I think is in the UK, we have a high level of use of rituximab, but I, is it, would it be right that in, in other countries outside the UK, there's more use of rituximab for this manifestation than for other features of lupus? Is that... Do you think that's correct? Yes, indeed. This is correct. This is like your practice. Yeah. Yes. So let's go to Friday's initial therapy. Here uh, in this statement, I would like to, to draw your attention to two things. There are uh, two types of drugs, MMF and uh, intravenous cyclophosphamide. I'm, I'm referring, we're referring here to the Eurolupus regimen. We state should receive uh, and whereas with Belimumab or CNIs uh, from the beginning should be considered. And this is why did we do this? This is not because the data are weaker. There is very strong data suggesting that Belimumab or calcineur inhibitors can be effective from the beginning. But there is always the risk of overtreating, and these therapies are not uh, expensive. So that's why we made this distinction. Uh, I guess as time goes by, probably you know these drugs, the biologics and CNIs will will uh, will will be uh, become will be introduced pretty much in most patients with nephritis. But um, I just wanted to highlight why we decided to use diff this different language: should receive versus should be considered it, because they are not cheap. Ed, is that clear? Yeah, I mean, I'm using the law. And do you think that if we have limited use of these drugs, we should try to identify the patients who are the highest risk for the combination and maybe the lowest risk receive mycophenolate? Uh, you're talking about the mycophenolate. Yeah, I was wondering if we should try to 
based on the patient's characteristics, like the biopsy, the clinical features, the other locus features, we should try to select, does this patient need one therapy or two therapies? Do we have the evidence yeah. to say this yet? No, we have some circumstantial evidence suggesting that some patients, there are some high risk, I guess, Edgar referring to this, uh, that uh, younger lupus patients mm. who have a very active nephritis, who have a very high active serology, they are more likely to, to relapse. Therefore, these are the patients who have, uh, who may be the first candidates to, to use these drugs, yeah. if this is what you're referring to. Yeah, and whereas patients with multiple disease, may, you, you could use them after the first three months if they have not responded adequately. Yeah. That's what I was wondering, although my preference would be to give combinations to all my patients if I was able to. Yes, indeed, because the Benlista has, uh, it's uh, safe and reduces the risk of flares, which increase substantially the risk for uh, organ damage to the kidney, as there are many uh, studies suggesting. Yeah. So what do you do after the first initial therapy? Uh, and uh, after the initial therapy, uh, and following the renal response, if the patient is improving, and we have defined that, uh, the patient should receive for at least three years uh, the following. If this patient were initially treated with mycophenolate or uh, alone or recommendation with Belista or a CNI, they should remain on these drugs. The evidence is 1A. Whereas mycophenolator is a thiopine, should replace cyclophosphamide for uh, those initially treated with cyclophosphamide alone or in combination with belimumab. And the reason for that is simple, is cyclophosphamide long-term use causes sterility, and that's why you like the subsequent therapy to discontinue and use another agent uh, as um, for the follow-up therapy. Ed, is yeah. that clear? That's right, yeah. And I think I was talking to Brad Rovin on a podcast recently, and he was saying that although the original Eurolupus study said cyclophosphamide followed by azathioprine, that doesn't mean we have to do that today in 2023. We can kind of combine Eurolupus and then with mycophenolate maintenance. Yes, indeed. That's a good point. So let's go to the next one uh, statement. And we felt that there is uh, uh, in patients at high risk, uh, there is, we have to, again, not to, to, uh, to think of high dose of cyclophosphamide, not the urolupus regimen. And how do you define this high risk uh, patients, patients with reduced GFR, um, severe activity and high chronicity. The high dose NIH regimen in combination with parts of methanol can be considered. There are strong data supporting it. This is a small population of lupus nephritis in, in our centers, like in one in four or one in five uh, patients. I think this is a good drug, and most of us agree that you use this drug because uh, if for a short period of time, it's, it's very effective. And if you combine with a belimumab and you subsequently use MMF, you can spare a lot of the toxicity. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Ed, Ed, 
any comments on this? I, the, one of the ideas here, I suppose, is that you, we don't, when we look at the biopsy result, we don't just ask, is it class three? Is it class four? Is it class five? We actually have to look a little bit more detail at some of the other features like interstitial inflammation is an important predictor of outcome, isn't it? So the histology involves both, as you said, activity, crescent of fibrinoid curves, but also chronicity in the uh, including uh, uh, plus the decision inflammation, which is becoming uh, uh, more important, but also in the fibrosis and, uh, um, and tubular atrophy. These are the chronicity features. Yeah. So, so again, just here. Sorry. Please. I, I, I was just going to say that again, it um, emphasizes that it's always valuable to do a biopsy. Even some people say, if you're going to start mycophenolate, why do you need to do a biopsy? But actually, it's very useful to understand the level of risk of the patient, the particular features already present at baseline, how much scarring, etc. That's an important point. And as in previous recommendations, uh, we have a low threshold to perform an initial kidney biopsy. The issue of biopsying after the therapy is a little bit more contentious, and this is... Um, uh, requires more discussion, but uh, low threshold of uh, renal biopsy allows you to take a very accurate uh, look at the kidney and so you know what you're treating. Because many times if you don't do it, you don't know what you're really treating. This is the the point that Ed was trying to make. Uh, of course, after you treat, you have to taper with suppressive therapy and corticoids. We try to taper the steroids first because of the risk for toxicity and the damage. And for the immunosuppressives, initially there was a lot of enthusiasm about decreasing the immunosuppressive therapy in lupus patients. But the data becoming uh, 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 clear that uh, you do not, uh, uh, you, you, may, you may have to wait a little bit longer. But for the steroids, you have to, you can uh, taper them uh, and even discontinue them. Uh, now, there is a study which we discussed, uh, Cortiluc, uh, where abruptly they discontinued the steroids. They had flares, and which were mild to moderate. Uh, the point that I take from there is uh, it's not, not to discontinue the steroids, but you do that gradually. Don't do that abruptly as they did that in this protocol. Add any comments on this? You think that just thinking back to the previous guideline as well about steroid dose, do you think all patients should try to achieve zero? Or do you think sometimes it's better? Most patients, yes. Especially young girls, you know, if it's uh, young women, uh, you know, uh, women in their 20s or 30s, can you imagine a woman taking for the rest of her life uh, corticosteroids? Yeah. I mean, the skin will be terrible, you know, the bones will be terrible, the cataracts, there's a lot of toxicity. So I think it's an um, ambitious uh, uh, goal that we need to, to target, I would yeah. say. I agree. For antifosolipid antibodies, there is no change. Uh, this patient should be uh, uh, managed with long-term vitamin K antagonists after the first arterial unprovoked venous thrombotic event. And the low-dose aspirin should be considered as primary prevention in lupus, non-APS patients with a high-risk APL profile. And the high-risk profile is triple positivity or double positivity 
or these are well established. So uh, the data are weaker for the aspirin, for the thrombosis, uh, for the phospholipid antibody, for the vitamin K antagonist, the data are much stronger, 1BB. And we're not using these new NOACs, the new, uh, new oral anticoagulants, because uh, they may not be as effective, at least for the arterial thrombosis. Ed? Yeah, that was going to be my question, actually. Yeah, so you answered it already. So these are, we're coming to the end slowly, so we can have some discussion. These are the key points, the take-home messages. Uh, uh, together with these regular recommendations, there was a how to treat a lecture at the regular guidelines. And these are the, the, the key messages. Early diagnostic treatment is essential. Uh, the uh, Slurpee is an important tool for to, to ensure early diagnosis. It's important to do the kidney biopsy and to stratify the patients according to the risk for flare or for end-stage general disease in case of nephritis. Steroids save lives, but the expense of excessive collateral damage, and we'll become more and more aware of this. Better, uh, the steroids are better for short-term uses a rescue bridging therapy, but may use in some patients at five milligrams per kilogram per day, not seven and a half as the previous guidelines. Uh, this reduction uh, saves a lot of toxicity. We target remission, not uh, or low this activity, but with prednisone now, as compared to the uh, previous recommendations, less or equal than five milligrams per day. Biologics enable the steroid tapping while assuring achieving remission low disease activity in more patients with less fares and damage. And this is what becoming more daring with steroids, daring with steroids because of the availability of the biologics. If used early the bio, uh, biologics, you may have better responses and less damage. They are in, uh, increasing data supporting that the area use of biologics uh, will be more effective, like in other areas of rheumatology. And an important practical point is that to measure this activity damage and audit quality of care. And Gulan has um, uh, some recommendation quality indicators, a checklist to allow you to know that uh, the lupus care is optimal. These are the uh, take home messages. Ed? Yeah, and I, I think. Just to reflect, I think these guidelines have got a, a lot of important new messages about the specific organs and the new drugs. I suppose one thing I was thinking is now that we have new guidelines, how do we make sure the guidelines get followed in clinical practice? This is a very good point, and it's uh, the adhere and uh, uh, just complying with them and adherence uh, and part of the patients was discussed extensively. Uh, during the deliberation, we felt that uh, uh, we could use the uh, Euler uh, quality of um, uh, quality of care um, recommendations as a checklist. So, uh, as you do in the UK, you have you have pioneered this. Uh, to my understanding, uh, is that you have nurse practitioners who audit the clinic or they have more time because we have seen that the uh, physician is more likely to, to, to comply with the treatment guidelines. But as far as the monitoring or, uh, uh, or follow-up guidelines, 
they are not very good. And also for agile measures such as osteoporosis, screening for vaccinations or cardiovascular disease and prevention, uh, we're not doing as well uh, as as good. So uh, this is creating these checklists and having nurse practitioners audit the clinics and just making sure that these are in, uh, are being done maybe a way. What do you do in the UK, Ed? Yeah, that's true. I think audit is important. And another thing that's happening in the UK is there's more emphasis on um, treating lupus patients in specialist centres where people are very familiar with lupus care um, or um, phys physicians who have an interest in the disease, especially when they're more severe or they, or they need biologics. Um, and then the other question, of course, at the end of any guideline is, this is a big advance, but also we always think about what are the next questions? Um, so what what are the areas that we aren't so clear in the evidence or, or or the trials or studies that need to be done? Or what's the research agenda? What what do you think are the most important questions now? I guess uh, uh, it's not as fancy, but it's a practical need and an admin need. I think we need to, to, to assess better the traditional therapies and to, to know how good or how bad they are. Uh, we've been using them a lot, but there is, uh, we have not, uh, we don't have good quality data uh, to, to measure their effectiveness or toxicity. That's an unmet need. The other thing is uh, this notion about the early uh, use of biologic therapies. Uh, uh, how, uh, how much will decrease the damage and how much it will change the natural history of the disease uh, uh, is an unmet need. And the final thing that we discussed already is the neuropsychiatric lupus. There's a black box, and uh, it's a difficult area to study, as you know it. But it's uh, we need to we do, do uh, need to do more studies there because there cause there are measure cause morbidity and mortality. Yeah, that's what I, I was thinking. But we need. Uh, one thing from, from your presentation that I saw was that the evidence for some manifestations of lupus is much weaker. So neuropsychiatric is one, but also some of the other organs that may be the less common organs, like the gastrointestinal involvement or the, some of the cardiorespiratory features aren't so common in the trials of the biologics. And, uh, and maybe we need different sorts of trials to, to tell us about those organs. Um, and I also, the other thing I was thinking while you were speaking was that another big question that's arising now is how long do we need to continue the therapy? If it's a high cost drug, uh, like a, a biologic therapy, then if the patient's been in remission for three years, do we stop it now? Do we continue? Uh, do we know? Yes, indeed. Okay, so I think that's about all that we have time for today. Um, so thank you very much for joining me, Professor Bumpus. It's so great to have your insights as the lead of this project, tell us into not just what the guidelines are, but why they changed and what they mean in practice. So thank you very much for, for your presentation. 
It was uh, I was delighted uh, having this conversation with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, and thank you to our, our listeners for uh, for joining this special broadcast brought brought to you by the Lupus Forum. The Lupus Forum is free to access. All our content, including this podcast, is free to download at lupus-forum.com. And don't forget to register for updates. You'll receive emails when new content is made available. You can also follow us at the Lupus Forum, all one word, on Twitter and LinkedIn. So thanks again and see you next time.